This evening we've got a special treat for you. Um, we're going to be looking at the gifts of the Holy Spirit again. Um, yeah, thank you. What a response. Um, um, and this evening we're going to be looking um, at what 1 Corinthians 12 calls the effecting of miracles. So we're going to be looking at whether you call it the gift of miracles or the effecting of miracles, we're going to be diving into um, the role of miracles in the body of Christ. Um, and I feel like this is a really good topic to be talking about in light of what we heard this morning um, and Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 and what um, the miracle was, but what God's intention was behind the physical miracle. Um, so we're going to be looking at, um, at both sides. We're going to be looking at the value of miracles, the value that they added to the body of Christ. But we're also going to be looking at what they don't add and what they can't accomplish um, and looking at what I believe to be a really well-rounded, hopefully, and healthy perspective on miracles, um, what they can do but what they can't do. Is that cool? All right. So 1 Corinthians 12, um, you don't need to turn there because we're not going to be staying there for the whole night. Um, this is just to set the scene. Um, and then we're going to be looking at John chapter 6. All right. So 1 Corinthians 12. All right. I'll, I'll just read this out, um, and then we'll head to John 6. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things and all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, and to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all of these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. Cool. And if we head to John chapter 6. Borrowing Sam's Bible because it's a bit bigger print than mine to read from. All right. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he's performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he knew himself what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for them, for everyone to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, in number about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, 
gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Uh, Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me I should lose nothing but should raise it up at the last day. This is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Cool. Thanks, guys. So interesting passage, eh? Or interesting two passages. Um, And I think, um, like um, like we read in the the first passage, you know, Jesus does an incredible miracle, taking, you know, was it five, um, five loaves of bread and some fish and multiplying it to feed 5,000 people. So this is, a, this is no small thing. It's an incredible, powerful, divine work of God that we see his power expressed um, to all of those who are around. Um, and I think um, for us here this evening, I think it's so important to recognize and, and to realize that actually miracles were a really key part of Jesus's, of Jesus's ministry. Um, he did miracles time and time again. Um, and they, the miracles of healing, um, signs and wonders, miracles of multiplying bread, miracles of um, going and taking a fish and literally taking money out of its mouth to pay temple tax. You know, there was so many miracles that, that Jesus did. Um, and miracles are actually not like it's it's actually okay that there are miracles in, in, in the sense that um, you know we, we hear following on in, the, in these verses people who have a perspective of miracles that are unhealthy, but miracles in and of themselves aren't wrong. They're not negative. They're actually a, a tool that God has given to point towards Himself, um, and so. 
we have here a, a powerful passage of Jesus performing um, a miracle, but then we read almost seemingly contradictory passages where people come then to Jesus seeking miracles, asking for a sign or a wonder, and he rebukes them strongly for it and says, oh, oh, what is it? A, um, a wicked and an adulterous generation seeks after signs. So we have a bit of a paradox here. Eh? Firstly, we've got Jesus who's moving in these powerful miracles, and then people who took that and started to seek the miracles um, and all of a sudden were strongly rebuked for their attitude and their perspective towards these miracles. So what I'm keen for our panel to discuss this evening is, firstly, what, what is the role of miracles? What value do they add? Why did Jesus move in miracles? But why was he at, at, some, you know, at, at some particular points um, opposed to people's maybe unhealthy thirst and desire to see signs and wonders and miracles. Is that cool, guys? All right. So what we're going to do is we're going to start from verse 26, and we're going to work our way line by line um, to, um, to unpack what we call the word beyond the word, to see what it was that, um, that Jesus was bringing to light in his dialogue. Oh, it says here, words to the people. All right. So we'll start at verse 26. Uh, Jesus answered and said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of, a lo of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Interesting passage, eh? Fascinating passage. And so, first question I have for the panel is, why, why were these people seeking Jesus? What, what, drew, them, what, what drew them to him in, in the first instance? And it would be cool to hear your thoughts on um, what was kind of playing out in that situation. Um, yeah, well, I, that bit, that, that's, um, can I just go back a tiny bit there? Because it says, um, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And he's just walked across the water to get there, right? And um, and he says, most assuredly I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs. Because like you're saying, the signs in and of themselves aren't wrong. Like um, we heard this morning from Greg that uh, signs and miracles are one of the witnesses that point to who Christ was. He said, if you don't believe me, believe me for the work's sake. Um, and, and yet it seems in this moment that they, they didn't take the sign as an indicator of who it is that he was. They, they were looking for the sign, uh, they were looking for the food that came as a result of the sign because it was a very earthly bound position where they're hungry and they're like, this guy could continue to feed us, you know. It's like the goose that laid the golden egg. Just grab the goose, you know, for the golden egg's sake. Um, but I just found it interesting and I went back there a, a second because for me I go, Jesus had this moment of this miracle where he walked across the water to get there and they asked him and they said, when did you come here? Because they know there's one boat that went across. They saw the disciples jump into it. He didn't go in on it, but he's there. And they're like, how did you get there? And there's this moment where a lesser man might have just taken an opportunity to go, I walked on the water. <laughs> you should have seen it. 
I've got a YouTube channel. <laughs> I had a selfie stick while I did it, you know. Could have totally done it and all for the glory of God, right? Look what he did, you know. And he just, look at me. <laughs> and, and he sidesteps that whole thing. He goes, because you guys aren't even seeking the sign. You're seeking the result of the sign. We're back two steps from where we need to be. And yeah, for me, I think that he's, he's obviously identified it for what it is. And he's going, if anything, use the sign as evidence of who I am. And, and yeah, don't get lost. That's great. I find it interesting that it says, I, um, you know, it says, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. And it, it's interesting to me that he's, you know, he's, he's talking about two different things. He says there's, there's people who, who saw, um, you know, who saw the signs and then he goes to another level and he says, but you've actually physically eaten of the very, of the miracle that I've just produced, you know? And so it's, it's almost like saying, like, there's, a, there's miracles that they've witnessed, that wasn't enough. Then they actually tasted of the miracles and that still wasn't enough, you know? And, um, and Mark and I were chatting this afternoon and we are saying, well, you know, so often there's this mentality that, man, if I was there in Jesus' day, you know, if I, if I walked with him, if I, um, you know, if I tasted of the miracles, if I had been healed, then I would believe, you know. And Jesus is almost like killing two birds with one stone, you know. He's saying, guys, it's not just about seeing the miracles, but it's also not even about tasting of the physical bread that I've given to you to eat. That was fantastic, and I'm so glad that you're not hungry anymore. But there's something greater for you to enter into. There's a greater food source. There's an eternal life for you to be eating and drinking of, um, which we're about to hear in, um, in the next couple of verses. I love, though, that he uses the reference of the natural to give them a reference of something that's coming. So he always gives us the physical as a foreshadowing for what's coming so we have a reference for it. You know. So I love the fact that he says you have your fill. And he's about, he's setting, he sets us up. Like I said this morning, he sets everyone us up for a win. But he does it not the way you expect he's going to do it. And so he's setting them up because he's about to tell them who the bread of life is. So they have a tangible experience. They have a tangible reference of the natural. And he's about to transition. And that's what he uses to transition us. He says, here's a foreshadowing. But don't let the foreshadow, I want to move you from the foreshadow into the substance. So what you're about to receive now is the substance. Do you believe that? So do you believe you can have what you just had in the natural 24-7 if you partake of me? And I think that's, to me, that's the power of, of miracles. It's the power of typology as well, you know. And Jesus was always talking in parables. And you see, he kind of gets them in the parable, eh? Like he gives an earthly typology and he wins them over, you know. And he says, you know, if, if you're aware that this happens, you know, this happens in the natural, yeah, and everyone's on board. And he said, oh, just as it is in the natural, so also it is in the spirit. I'm not not these exact words, but you know he he wins them over with an earthly thing and says, "Yep, that's how it functions in this in this new spiritual dimension called the kingdom of God." You know, and I think in some ways that's the beauty of the beauty of teaching. You know, and I I, I said I I feel like using typology. 
speak for myself, I feel like using typologies and, and teaching is such a great teaching tool because you get everyone on board with what you're saying physically and then there's an opportunity to bring a greater dimension of spiritual life. But it's, it's funny because even in the best possible typology, even after having eaten bread that's divine and heavenly, even after totally acknowledging that this is how something operates in the physical realm, the typology in and of itself isn't enough to create spiritual life. You know, There's something greater that still has to take place where that word goes from, or that miracle just goes from being outside till you receive actually the very word of God itself, the intention behind the typology, the words behind the word, which actually is the only thing that produces that life within you, hey? So... Just building on that point about how Christ uses the natural to point to the spiritual. I think that just points to the ways of God, like whether it's in the coming to know God or going deeper into God. He's always the initiator. He always comes to where we are and teaches us from there, which to me is just stunning, that there is never a gap where we have to get to a point so he takes us further. It's always that from where we are and what we might see as a massive need and he sees as tiny, he goes, let me meet this need and in doing that I'm going to teach you and expand your horizons to something much greater of who I am. Can I give an example of that? Just just in verse 3. Um, so he says, Then Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of of the Jews was near. Who's the Passover? Feast of the Jews. So they have obviously a reference for the natural Passover. But is he talking about that? Yeah. But what else is he talking about? So if he is the Passover, and it's a feast, and it's for the people of God, he's setting them up once again to say, I am the feast, I am the Passover, I am the bread. And it's a feast. So in him is everything pertaining to life, yeah? I just love the fact that, yes, he's talking about the natural, and yes, he's going to take fish, and he's going to take some bread, but actually he's talking about himself. He's always talking about himself. But we can miss it in just thinking it's all natural stuff. And he's right there in front of them, saying, I'm the Passover lamb. So he's always connecting dots, and we... It's our responsibility to see the dots he's connecting us to. Otherwise, you just read that and you go, oh, yeah, the Passover, yeah, that's the Jewish custom. It's a feast, and it was near. I love this, but therefore Jesus lifting up his eyes. <laughs> see, when you know the entire context, when you know, where did he come from? Where did the bread come from? So he's looking up to the source of life where he's from. 
He's relating everything really to himself. Hence, on the Christ, I build my church. Unless you eat of me and drink of me, you have no life within yourself. So it's just Jesus. You know? So never go beyond, I guess, the revelation of what he's himself. So. Um, verse 27 do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father, God, has set his seal. What does it mean to work for the food that endures to eternal life? Um. For me, when I hear that, I think, um, I think it's Galatians, it says, who, um, God is not mocked, whatever a man sows, that is what he will reap. And if you sow to the flesh, you'll reap from the flesh. But if you sow to the spirit, you reap of the spirit. Yes, in a nutshell, that's kind of what I'm hearing when I read that. That there's things we can do which are earthbound, which originate with us and I mean uh, you know just jumping back a little bit there where um, to the miracle of the loaves and fishes um, you know Jesus like you're saying Greg sets them up and he says they, they, they turn up and they have they, they know that they can't pull a rabbit out of a hat here but they've got a little idea and, you know, Andrew's the boldest one. He turns up and he kind of goes, this is the dumbest idea ever, but I'm going to say it. We've got five loaves and two fishes. And and you can kind of hear him going, I can't believe I'm even suggesting this because where's this going to go? But this is the little that we have. And, you know, in this process, you see them going, the disciples who have been walking with Christ going, where are we going to buy bread? 200 denarii, whatever that is, a heck of a lot of money isn't going to be enough to do that. And in themselves, they're looking for the resource to accomplish this thing which needs to be accomplished, and they come up short. And so they they turn up and they go, we haven't got it. We can't work it out. And he's, he tests them and goes, you, you guys do this. See what you've got. And they're like, ah, <laughs> we haven't got it. <laughs> and um, And they give it to him, and he goes, right, it looks like this. And so I feel like in that moment there's this, trade-off between the flesh and the spirit the flesh turned up walked away empty-handed we haven't got the money we've got something which isn't enough and then Christ turns up gives it to his father which is the handing over of it really to me lifts it to heaven like you're saying and goes here we go brought brought God into the equation (laughs) it's interesting to me that it's specifically said that that Jesus was testing them, yeah. you know, like, and I love that that in this, there's He's creating a discipleship environment for so many different people, at, you know, at, at the same time, you know, for for His disciples, it, and I, and I think that word test can have so such negative connotations, you know, almost like He's trying to trip them up, but that's actually not what's going on, you know, He's 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 testing them to highlight to them that there's something so much greater than what they see just in loaves and fish, you know. Um, 
And I think on so many levels, he's creating an opportunity for people to see, firstly, that he's able to provide physically, but greater than that, that he is the very bread of life, you know. Um, so I think that's cool. Um, I, I think as well, back, you know, back in, in verse 27, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal, eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. And I think, interesting, eh, that he's saying, um, you know, uh, how do I say this? Um, but for, uh, do not work for the food which perishes, but and, and implying working for the food which endures to eternal life. So he says, work for the food that endures to eternal life, but he says, that the Son of Man will give you. Mm. Like, what kind of a paradox is that? Yeah. Work for what you're going to receive freely. Yeah. You know, and I, and I feel like that, to me, brings so much light to the works that God is looking for us to do, yeah, which, like we heard from Chris saying before, are not natural, earthly works that we can accomplish, mm. but are works that He's prepared before the ages for us to walk in, you know? And to me, that's so different one is striving and struggling and attempting to to work something out through natural capacity, and the and the other is having received from him. Um, that's the very work of God that then expresses itself through our actions and, and the things that we do. So. Yeah, I just you just see the master teacher at work. I think here where he he's leading them to the next question they need to ask, so that he can give them what they need to hear. But he does it by creating this paradox, as Sam says, where they go, what do you mean work for this thing you're going to give us? That sets up a question where he can answer. And I just so see that in my own life, that he, either he asks a question to test my heart, or I ask him one that he set up. Um, so I, I, just see, I just see his teaching in my life so in line with there's two food sources, isn't there? So there's one food source that perishes, and there's one food source that endures to an eternal life. And you know, we do not work well in the world. You have to work to put food on the table. You have to work to put clothes on your back. You have to work to buy things. You have to work to keep your physical body alive. If you don't work, then you're not going to live. And so he uses the same word work, but it's his version of work, not our version of work. And then Matthew, I love it, Matthew six twenty five. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat, food, or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So we spend so much of our lives focusing on working for things that are perishing so he says what are you doing now I know you need those things to keep this physical body alive but that's not the place that you should be working because there's an eternal life which is a new life which is this brand new life in me that's more than the body it's more than clothing it's more that and why are you so worried and anxious in life is because you're trying to keep a life that's perishing alive and working for things that keep falling through your hands. And you get on this treadmill. So he's actually screaming out, stop. He says, who is the source of your life? 
Who is the provider? I know you need physical things because he says, I know the Gentiles, you need these things. He's not talking about a lot of the stuff we make it about. He's talking about the things he's spoken about. You need food, clothing, water, shelter. But seek first me, my kingdom, and my righteousness because that's where all the eternal food is that never perishes which then builds the eternal life, which is Christ in you, which enables you to no longer be worried or anxious about your life because your life is dead. We spend so much time worrying about a life that's supposed to be dead. Yeah, it is. It's the truth, eh? Uh, so, like, imagine what it would be like if you just didn't have to worry about your physical life, you know? Because that's literally what is that's literally what is available to us, right? You know, like it's not it's not a trick question. He's he's actually genuinely saying you don't need to worry about your physical life, you know, and 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 so I think why and and to me the the question is not the fact that we just kick back and relax and do nothing. It's asking the why behind that, which is so that we can seek first the kingdom and its righteousness, you know, so that your mind doesn't need to be so consumed by everything that's going on around you. and you know, um, um, But being able to trust and know that he has the capacity to provide for your need, um, I, I think it, it liberates you above having to work for the food that perishes, eh? You know? That's... Um, that's Verse 28, isn't it, where he's turned around and given them this paradox, which is don't work, but work. And they go, all right. And they heard work and went, okay, what should we do that we may work the works of God? And they're ready. You can tell they're engaged. They're keen. They're, you know, good, committed Christians. <laughs> what are we, what are we going to do? You know, t- well, just point us in the right direction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Point us in the right direction. And we'll go and build what you want us to build. That's that's the the doing thing, isn't yeah. it? Because see, what you're going to see is they're committed, but they ain't surrendered. <laughs> and I I love the fact that you can work for food that perishes, but what you can't get is the food that endures. Why? Can I ask why? Why is he the only place you can get this food from? You can get food that perishes all day long. You can be the source and you can go work really hard and create for you a life. Why is it that he says there's no other way to the life that endures but through the sun? Why? Sounds like the Garden of Eden again, doesn't it? Where the tree of life was taken from us so that we couldn't find life in ourselves and stay in our mess. Why? Why is the only place the sun? And it's it's what Chris said, but let's expand on that. That's for them. Well, that's <laughs> for them. Us, us, them, but. Yeah, but why does he stop you? Yeah, so, so so you can't continue to eat food that's perishing because uh, so he's going, there's uh, only one way to the life that endures 
and it's me. So he is the backstop, the full stop, the every stop. And I love what Cena said at the singles night when she said, you know, until you realize that everything out there is dead, you're still trying to find life in dead things. And you have to get to the end of eating all the dead stuff to realize that what you needed was him at the start because he's been talking this going, don't you believe that there's nothing of life in dead things? By the look of your life, you don't. Hence him saying the work of God is to believe. So to continue to find life in dead things is showing you you don't believe what he says. You may have a mental agreement and go, yeah, I believe that, but your life is telling you and him you don't believe, which means within an unbelief. Because the opposite of belief is unbelief. But we can say, well, I believe, but you keep working for food that's perishing. And you keep trying to find life in dead things. Hence the angel saying, why, ladies, are you looking for life among the dead? What are you even doing here? Hello? But isn't it cool that God sends angels? Because he knew man would be looking for life in dead things. To redirect man. And then say, can you not remember when he said to you that he would go ahead of you in Galilee? So then the angelic realm bring the word of God, which Jesus said, to light again so then they can start believing in what was already spoken. And I think to me, you know, we were talking about Matthew 6 before, you know, he says, you know, why do you worry about your life, what you eat, what you drink, what you wear? Um, and, and I think to me, like, that's... That's the fruit of of unbelief, right? Is is worry and anxiety and stress, and being consumed and thinking about yourself and the things that you need, you know. Whereas the fruit um, of of the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, you know. Um, so it's very different. Um, you know, two polar opposite ways of of operating. So. And thinking about the miracle we're talking about tonight, part of what God does in revealing himself through miracles is he goes, can't you see that I can create a meal for 10,000 out of this? So can't you see that I can provide? Because it's written that I can do this. So he's pointing to who he is to us in each of the miracles. So he's not just trust me based on nothing. He's trust me based on what you know in your own life and what you know is written. And if he can do that with the word, then how capable is he of being able to bring us into the eternal life, you know? Um, so I think, like, it's, it's, it's all part of the same package, eh? Cool. All right, shall we move on to the next verse, 28? Therefore they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom um, he has sent. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Seems like it's still that same functioning reference point. 
what, how do we function in this? What's our role? Tell us what to do and point us in the right direction and we'll do it. And he goes, okay, I'm, I'm going to tell you, it doesn't look like doing stuff. And they go, okay, then what are you going to do? Because someone has to function. If it's not us, it's going to be you. All right, we're prepared to dance. If we're not going to dance, then you need to dance. That's, that's kind of what it sounds like to me. <laughs> and, and, and then they really... They, they do, you know, I, I make jokes about them being good Christian, but I, I, say, I say it like that because I feel like this is how we naturally think. And I, I put myself into this position. I go, what's the Christian way of thinking here? And they go, well, we've read the Bible, and it looks like this, and this is what it says the way we see it. So it's, it's from, a, from a definite reference point that they have, and they're going, from our reference point, you need to function or we need to function, and this is why, because God said it like this. And so they're seeing it through a particular lens and basically it sounds like they're trying to box him into what it is that they want him to do. And he's like, no, this word that I'm telling you is completely outside of that box. It isn't a function word at all. And he says to them in, in, in verse 30, he's, um, it says, so they said to him, uh, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? Interesting that they associate seeing a sign means that they've believed him. And then they give the example of the Israelites who ate manna in the wilderness as being an example of someone who received a sign and therefore believed. But if they knew the typology they were referencing, (laughs) the the Israelites throughout the wilderness for 40 years are probably not the best example of a, of a people who received a miracle and were full of belief. And that's what's interesting in, in, in five, at the end of, in the, at the end of chapter five, he's talking to these people that say, but we're of Moses. He says, if you were of Moses, you'd be of me. And this is this whole area that we go, well, we're of Christ. And we go, okay, are you? Well, let's yeah. test that. Yeah. Let's see if you're of the same kind of the Christ in thinking, ability to demonstrate, you know, so that. But they're convinced. They are convinced they're of Moses. And this is what happens when you have the message, but you don't know the messenger. This is a classic example because all of John 6 is they have a message. And he's going to mess them up because what he's saying is really going to mess with their message. He's going to talk about blood, eating flesh. He's going to talk about everything according to their law that's anti the Messiah. How can you be the Messiah and talk like this? If you were the Messiah, you'd know the law. Oh, I'm fulfilling it right in front of your face. But because you only know the message and not the messenger, you actually don't know the message. The messenger has to define the message, which means we must know the message, messenger to know the message. What we do is when we don't know the messenger or we only have you know, a, a small measure, our measure's not growing, we look, I love what Chris said, someone is going to perform function <laughs> in this passage <laughs> because that's what happens when... We don't have the messenger, and we're reading the message through a functional lens. 
See, it's the natural. It's going to have to outwork itself because that's all we know what to do. We don't know how to be because you have to know the messenger to be still. And so then as you be still, the Holy Spirit then can actually teach you the message. And you don't put your spin on the message because you know the messenger. This is how you get all the denominations. This is how you get churches that do, don't believe in the Holy Spirit, the gifts, not believe in the gifts. How does this all happen? Because it's a lack of knowing the messenger. He says, do you believe in the messenger? The one God has sent. Well, his, their reference point for pretty much everything he's saying is no, we don't. So prove yourself. Perform a work. We want to pay you for do tricks for us. Yeah. Who's God here? Yeah. <laughs> you know, the pride, the stench that's coming out of these people, but he's still there because he loves he loves them, so he's not running away from them. They run away from him. Yeah. But he's loving them. And so, guys, we have to know the messenger. Get to know the messenger before you start figuring out the message. What I thought was really striking about this again is he's talking to them about a sign he's already done. <laughs> so it's not like there hasn't yet been a sign. Yeah. So they say, what's that sign about? And he says, hey, the key here is believe in me. And they say, now we want a sign. So it's this funny reversion. Um, when the Lord was talking to me about this, he took me back to John 2, which is where Jesus does his first miracle, the water to wine miracle. And it's really interesting. After he does that miracle, the word says, the, this is the beginning of the signs and miracles Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And to me, that demonstrates the difference between the disciples, those who were following him then. This is the beginning of John, so they're not sorted out, right? We see through the rest of the Gospels. They've got a lot that they need to learn. But that that posture is believing, is that what the miracle did is it made them teachable. It made them go, actually, we're going to posture ourselves to learn from you now. Whereas these guys see a miracle, and what they do is they, they try and put, Jesus to the test by their, their framework, as these guys are saying. Right, we need to fit you into the box so we understand. Rather than, wow, who are you? We need to learn from you. And yet the tension with that is that it says they were disciples that walked away. <laughs> and that's this ongoing transformation, is that you can believe in your head, because you can see it. Wow. He just turned water to wine. Who is he? Do you know who he is? Because he's asking us a question. And Jesus looked at his own disciples and said, do you still not believe? Do you still not understand? Do you still not hear and see? Is your heart still hard? And yet, in other breaths, they then believed. And what it just shows me is there's this ongoing transformative maturity of true belief which brings you into true revelation, which brings you into a true ability to live as Jesus lived. And just because we claim we are somebody doesn't mean we withdraw and walk away from 
Jesus in a moment in time and not even realize we do it. I've seen it. And we don't realize that he's trying to bring a new reality to us like he was in John 6. And we pack our bags and off we trot. Going, in the name of God, he's sending me this way. And he's going, no, in the name of God, you should have stayed and let me do a deeper work in your heart. But you rejected and resisted because in this moment, you didn't believe. And this is a reality in the body. It's a reality that God wants to open our eyes to see it so we can appropriate it and live in absolute alignment to him and not reject anything that he wants to do. Because just like in this, I guarantee you, what he wants to do, it won't come the way you want it to come. It will never come in the form you expect it. It will come outside of your paradigm and you won't have a reference for it to test your heart because of what he's looking for. He didn't come the way they thought he was going to come. Yes, he did. He came exactly the way it was written. And that's the abiding posture, eh? That just staying and staying with him when it's hard and when it's easy. Because he's going to continue to teach us. It's not an event, his teaching. It's a it's our lives. And it's all to facilitate something, right? You know, like the, this discipleship environment, the, the works, the, the miracles facilitate an opportunity to come to know him in a real, genuine way, you know, having him revealed by the Holy Spirit. Because I think it just makes me think of like what happens, you know, it talks about in the end times that people will come and will be doing all of these false signs and wonders, which are probably genuine miracles, and that they will, that people will be led astray by the miracles that come, you know, and it's so. What is it? It's not saying that the miracles are that miracles in and of themselves, like we're saying, are wrong. They just have to facilitate something greater than just trusting in Him for a miracle. You know, has to facilitate an opportunity where true knowledge is formed within us. You know, so that we're no longer dependent anymore on signs and wonders or um, or, or anything else for our source of life. You know. Um, another group there at the end uh, verse 14 where it says then those men when they had seen the sign that Jesus did said this truly this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world therefore when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king he departed to the mountain by himself alone and I, I love it that he's he's so skillfully navigating his way through these groups that are all seeing the wrong way and he's reacting accordingly. You know, he's not going to stick around to allow people to, to do the wrong thing. And then he's speaking to a group that are still trying to work. And he's, you know, it's, I just love it. He's so for us that he's not going to stop doing miracles because we're going to interpret it the wrong way. He's still going to use it as an instrument which points to himself in the hope that we'll come into this. He's not afraid of what we're going to turn up with, but, but there is an interaction required, right? Which means you have to stay completely 100% humble and teachable yeah. and not think you've arrived. Yeah. Yeah. And he will test that heart for the purpose of what he's looking for. And so you have to realize, you have to get a revelation that he's expecting a people. So he is expecting, when he comes back, he's looking for 
a particular type of people, okay? And not just converts. He's looking for her, and she will be his equal, which means we have to allow him to truly build us in accordance to the way he builds his house. So he's not marrying an immature girl. He's marrying his equal. So there is, and that's why we have a judgment seat. Are you aware of this? There's a judgment coming upon you and I as individuals to see whether we pass the test. And when you get a revelation of this, guarantee it wakens you up to things that are contained, that are concealed, but they're there waiting to be revealed. When you understand that there is an account of your life required for a reward, do you think it sharpens you up? When you know you're going to stand before a holy God, do not fall into the hands of a living God. But Paul says, I don't shrink back from my judgment. I can't wait for it. The confidence in the man because he knew his father and he knew the life he'd lived was going to get him the crown of righteousness. He was confident in Christ of his reward because he knew the Christ. And he writes it for us. And Jesus writes it, speaks it, screams it. But we've led ourselves into a false sense of security that's not real. That once in, that's it. It's about maturity. The goal is not heaven. The goal is maturity. Because we've taught the goal is heaven, we then try and get more people in heaven, and there's a little, very little maturity going on. And we miss it. We miss the main point. And so he's coming back. And there is a high expectation, especially on those who have been graced. For much is given, much is expected. But together, the greatest miracle is we become the very bride of Christ that he says we can become. The greatest miracle is not raising a dead person. It's raising a whole lot of dead people to become the bride of Christ. That's the greatest miracle. I believe the greatest miracle is to be able to love another human like Jesus loved them. To be able to minister grace to a behavior that's trying to kill you is the miracle that you'd all want to go after through the knowledge of God. So he is stirring this up within us because it's a high calling. Fully possible in him if we are eating the food that endures to eternal life. But if we are eating food that perishes, you'll get what you've always got. And he said here that my words are spirit and life. So the words I say are spirit and life. But the flesh profits nothing. So to hear words of spirit and life through the flesh profits you nothing. This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to this? What if I ascended to the place I was before? That would really mess you up. I am, because where was he before? So am I the source of your life, Rock Church? Am I your source? Or are you looking for other sources? Because if you are, they are perishing, and you will not be the church that I am calling you to be unless you are partaking of the source, and it's me.
because I am the eternal life. John 17, 3. I've been spending a little bit of time in John 6. <laughs> um, any questions at this stage? Any comments? You might regret passing this because I'm going to use you as an example. <laughs> I just, I just, you know, when I was, I was hearing the word test and thinking about how we can perceive that word. And then when we sit tests, it, the tests are really there to reveal what we do know. Now, as a consequence, they'll find out what we don't know. But most people want to get the exam results to find out what they got so they know what they know. And if you know, if you got fifty percent, well, there's fifty percent more you needed to have known, you know. <laughs> if your pass was fifty percent, thank you for math, science, and English school C, <laughs> you know. And so, so there's an aspect of 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 that. But he doesn't want to just leave us with what we don't know, because what we don't know, he wants to bring us into. And so our our, our application of the test and that can be somewhat somewhat distorted when we think, oh. Are we trying to find out how much we know? And I think, Sam, of you, you know, that exam that you're talking about that you sat and it's sort of like, wow, you kind of just jumped in and did it and, and got there. But if our concept of the test was that it was, well, I can just write down what I, what I know, and that was um, uh, uh, qualitative. There's some information I can write down. Brrr, there we go. And then someone rocked up and said, well, Actually, Sam, the test is going to be about, it's going to be qualitative. What is in you that you know this? What is your experience of this? Now you get found out because, well, I've only got the information, but I don't have a living application of it. And this is what he's doing for us in that, in that test, if you like, in the judgment seat. It's about the qualitative. It's about discovering what he's formed within us. And the only thing that we have to give him in that is the very work that he's performed in us because everything else is of the flesh it gets burnt up. The only thing that I have is gold, silver, precious metals. That's his work that's been built in me for him. Paul, can you just clarify something there though that, that at the judgment seat, the test will determine the reward, yeah? So... The tests are now. Yeah? Okay, cool. So the tests are now. So when you get to the judgment seat, you'll receive a reward. There's no reward at the judgment seat if you haven't passed the tests on earth. Okay? And the test is to show you who you've been called to be. So I want to show you. So it's all helping us, isn't it? That's what Paul's saying. It's all helping us to see where I'm really at. Because if this is where I'm called to be, and I don't know, let me show you where you're really at in relation to where I'm calling you to be. And that's what he's trying, his heart's breaking in Revelation to the church of Laodicea. You tell me you're this. I tell you you're this. Why? To make them feel bad? No. To show them where they're really at so you can become what I say you're to become. Yeah, because if you don't know, you don't know. And because he loves you, he has to come and show you. 
and he will show you through other people. So he will send people your way to say, hey, this is what I see for the purpose because I'm for you. So together we can become the very thing that he says, which means you always have to be humble and teachable and believe in one another. Let's believe if someone comes to help us, they're coming to help us. They're not coming to pull us down. They're not coming to hurt us. They're not coming to stop us. They're not coming to kill us. They're coming to help us because they can see things that we can't because they are for us. Isn't that a family? It's powerful. It's cool, mate. It's great. And I think to me that like what we talked about a number of weeks back around identity is what is so key because you know w- without that you'll hear verses like the one in Revelation and think that God is not for you or He's trying to expose you, He's trying to pull up all of your faults and, and that sort of thing. Whereas you know knowing who He says that we that we, um, that we are having a identity that's founded in Christ and knowing that it's the Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom, those verses become inspiring and building and uplifting as opposed to crippling, you know? 